Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 49 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of Los Angeles. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a political strategist who has worked for the likes of George W. Bush, John McCain, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Despite these impeccably red credentials, he last year co-founded The Lincoln Project, a collection of committed Republicans committed to preventing Donald Trump's re-election. Additionally, he is a member of the Real Facebook Oversight Board, a group which seeks to make Facebook keep the promises it has made to prevent the infiltration of propaganda intended to influence our upcoming federal elections. Hello and welcome, Reed Galen. Thanks for having me. Right off the bat, we should mention the Real Facebook Oversight Board has been taken offline. Yes? As I understand that, but I'll have to check on that. I hadn't heard that. Oh, I've read this is being reported as of 16 hours or so ago. Vice is reporting this. Facebook got this thing taken down, got your website taken down. Do I know more about this than you do? You might. I'll have to find out. I feel like I would have gotten an email about something. Yeah. I mean, I can look into it in real time if if you like. Well, we don't need to to deal with the specifics of that because, honestly, I want to talk about the larger goals that you are are trying to accomplish. Sure. So I I want to talk about the Lincoln Project. I want to talk about what you're doing with Facebook in regard to the election. Do you see these two goals as being sort of one and the same thing, or are they just mutually complementary? Um. I think they weave in and out. Okay. If they're like the Rolling Stones lead and rhythm guitars. Oh, well, sometimes well done. they're together. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're together and sometimes they're separate. Okay. Um, I think that they they all end up in the same place though, which is, you know, while while I think the Lincoln Project is is deemed never Trump. Yeah. Uh, I think we prefer to be thought of as pro democracy. Okay. Um, and that, you know, as we've seen the president's um mental and physical condition deteriorate here in the last week or so. Um, you know, he's he's lashing out more at people. You know, he wants his political opponents locked up. He wants Obama locked up. He wants Biden locked up. He's not going to accept the results of the, uh, you know, results of the election. You know, he's calling on the Proud Boys to lock and load. And, you know, he does those things. But a lot of those things are carried in the, in, you know, in the bloodstream of Facebook into these groups, these individuals. Um, you know, I don't know that there's been a definitive connection between these guys who, uh, you know, we're plotting to uh, kidnap the governor of uh, Michigan, uh, Whitmer. Um, but my get, I mean, but you read the affidavit. Like Facebook was where they where they congregated. They had their encrypted messaging, and you know, they, so that's you know that was the platform on which they communicated with one another when they weren't together. And so, you know, I think that they that both of these things have a common goal, which is, you know, we need to we need to defeat people like Donald Trump who would dispose of or destroy our democracy and we need to really take a harder look at places like facebook that allow this sewage to be pushed into the public uh, square and really have a i think a, a decidedly negative effect on the discourse mark zuckerberg has been a little bit inscrutable a lot of people look at him and see a lot of different things at least in terms of his political inclinations is the assumption of the real facebook oversight board that he either is or might be 
sympathetic to the cause of Donald Trump's reelection, that he simply might want to make as much money as possible and not care how he does it or what needs to happen for him to make that money? Where do you think he fits into this? I mean, I would say that we should take a step back and remember that the guy's an engineer, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so I think he sees things from an engineer's perspective, which is probably more, um, you know, logistical, maybe if that's the right word, than it is than it is philosophical or ideological, which is what is good for this this entity I've created that, you know, the, if it was a country, it'd be the largest one on earth. Yep. And how do I ensure that it continues to grow and is able to operate in the way I believe it wants to, you know, I want it to operate. I would also say that, is he actively sympathetic to Donald Trump individually? I, I can't speak to that, but I would venture to say that he would rather have a Donald Trump in the white house than a Joe Biden. Um, just given the fact that, you know, there are, I think an increasing number of Republicans and Democrats and independents, in Washington, D.C., and the potential regulatory structure of a Democratic administration who would take a much harder look at Facebook than than the Trump administration ever would or, frankly, would be capable of, given their lack of competence at most levels. Right. So we assume that having Trump around is at least good for business for Zuckerberg and Zuckerberg's eyes. And go well, for, for sure. And, right. you know, and, it, and it's a it's a symbiotic relationship, right? It's, yeah. it, it allows Trump's messages and messengers to be. I mean, look, we should not underestimate how effective Facebook is driving a, a message into the groups that, that support Donald Trump and to, to the people that support Donald Trump. It, it is incredibly effective. If you asked uh, uh, you know, a Trump supporter in Wisconsin and another Trump supporter in Florida why they support Donald Trump, my guess is, is that they w- it, would, it would be like they were reading off the same sheet of music. I've seen it personally when I talked to some folks outside of one of his rallies much earlier this year, pre-pandemic. So, you know, it is an it, it, we should not underestimate how powerful that funnel of information into into the groups into those voters that that Facebook plays. Right. It's the village square of the modern age. But on top of that, if anybody has even a, a passing understanding of how targeted ads and targeted verbiage and stuff like that works, it's it's a whole different level of effective advertising, in this case, political advertising. I'm a little bit confused about the aims of the real Facebook oversight board. I feel like I've read two different things. First, when it came across my desk, I understood it as more of a, you know, trying to uh, stop foreign interference in the election, uh, Cambridge Analytica kind of stuff. Now, um, based on the more recent bullet points I've seen, I understand it more of a keep Donald Trump from prematurely claiming victory and or inciting violence. Is it both of those things, either of those things? I mean, I would say it's both because, again, they're all tied to one another. Um, Again, we know that the Russians and foreign entities especially state actors understand like you and I are having this discussion. Like we understand what it is Facebook is good for and what it's capable of as far as being a, a delivery vehicle uh, for these messages to these groups. Um, And I would say that, you know, if you're listening to the things and you believe maybe what foreign actors are saying, you believe what Trump is saying, remember that a lot of these folks will take, when you get into a situation like you have with Donald Trump and his supporters where the, where the, the support is absolute, they'll take whatever it is he says as a sort of, you know, call to arms, relative, you, know, more, you know, metaphorically or real, you know, or literally. And so I think that in this case, those two things have melded because it very well could be that, you know, there are foreign actors who say, you know, who propagate the idea that Donald Trump has said, you know, the, the, the ballots are, you know, uh, you know, the ballots don't count. The, the whole thing is illegitimate um, because it's all a matter of confusing people, of driving down turnout and ultimately calling into question the legitimacy of the entire system. 
because here's what we know is that and the and the Trump people have known this maybe since he got elected is he can't win a high turnout election. It's an impossibility. Um, so he has to do everything he can to discourage people from participating, whether or not that's calling into question the whole ball game, whether or not that's instilling fear in them that if they attend, you know, if they go to a polling place in person, uh, you know, that maybe there there will be threats of intimidation or violence. And so I think in this context, they are one and the same, uh, even if they came in at different times. So let's talk first about the the 2016 round of Facebook issues. What are we seeing this time around in terms of foreign interference? We talked about Russia ad nauseum. I've since heard, well, actually, China was probably even doing more than Russia. Are we seeing much of the same as the last time around? Do we see a clear favorite from uh, foreign actors or is it more just about muddying the water and creating argument and dissension among the American body politic? Well, I would think that, I mean, from what I've seen, and I speak for myself personally, is that I think that yeah. Donald Trump is still the favored candidate. Okay. Uh, here's a couple of things you have. To, I mean, here's here's the one thing that I think is a great big secret that's really never been a secret, is that he's the most transparent person on earth. He tells you everything you need to know about himself all the time, what he's upset about, what he's frustrated about, what he's happy about, what are his, you know, his, uh, you know, touch points as far as, you know, his, his self-consciousness. And so, you know, I think that foreign governments and foreign intelligence services would far better have someone that's an open book to them, you know, both, you know, personality wise and intelligence wise, uh, than someone who is going to take a far harder look at, you know, what it means to have Russian aggression, what it means to deal with China as a, as a, as a global adversary. Um, Trump ultimately doesn't like to fight. Right. He, he likes to bluster, but everything he does is performative, whereas a Joe Biden has a lot of experience in this realm. Um, I'm not sure he's all the way to real politic, but he's going to take a much harder line on these guys than Trump ever will. And so I think that he's still the favored one. And look, a destabilized United States is a much better place for both China and Russia and all the other authoritarians. Uh, if I can, I guess, play devil's advocate, for lack of sure. a better phrase, I never took the Cambridge Analytical stuff all that seriously. There's a crisis du jour. There has been for five years in America, and it's just like Lucy and Ethel with the chocolates. I just let that one go by because somewhere along the way that I, I heard that probably everybody who voted saw something or two things from uh, uh, foreign actors, from trolls, what have you. And I figured, well, that really that sounds bad, but that would get buried under the dozens of legitimate things that they were hearing from people in there that they were actually legitimate Facebook friends with. I read it as a new face of old school political dirty tricks, which, uh, you know, you're a political operative. I'm not saying that you have engaged in political dirty tricks, but you're certainly at least as familiar with them as I am. Is it old political tricks in a, in a new form, or was it a whole different realm and level of infiltrating the conversation around the election? Well, I, I think I think you're probably right on the level of impact that maybe a Cambridge Analytica actually had. Okay. I think the, 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 the worrying part is that they were able to get access to so much data so easily uh, and that Facebook seemed so willing to give it to them. Uh, and, and without, you know, any any safeguards or anything like that, especially when they said they weren't doing it to other people. Um, and so or, you know, giving it to other people. And so I think that's the broader concern is is that, you know, this stuff, as you look at this stuff, I mean, if you look back at where Donald Trump started in 2015, right, it wasn't like everybody's like, oh, OK, you, we know we've known for three or four years that Donald Trump's going to run for president like he did it as a flyer. And then it became something real. And, you know, it's like Robert Redford at the end of the candidate, like they won. And he's like, what do we do now? Right. Um, 
and they still answer that question every day. Actually, they still ask that question, or somebody does, and they never answer it. He still um, doesn't have an answer for the second term either. We know that. No, but he doesn't have a question for tomorrow. He doesn't have an answer for tomorrow, let alone later right. this afternoon. So I think that what it showed was that once once all these actors, whether or not they were foreign or domestic, had a vehicle by which they could transmit their values and their ideas, that's where I think the Cambridge Analytica stuff really becomes dangerous because now it's we know exactly who it is we're trying to target. So yeah, maybe the average person got two of those messages. But if they and I don't I don't know if I believe all the psych psychography stuff either, to be honest with you, just been doing this too long. Um but they absolutely knew exactly who it was they wanted to communicate with. And remember, this stuff is cumulative. It's additive. I, I have no way of knowing if this is psychologically accurate because I am not a psychologist nor a psychiatrist. Um, but I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get inside Donald Trump's brain, which is I feel like what they what this whole, you know, Trump, Bannon, Fox, Facebook, Owen and like flywheel of doom does is they they get you hooked and you're listening and you're listening and you're listening and it sort of overloads your brain. And then, you know, then you're broken down a little bit. And then that's when they've really got you because now you've decided this is the reality, whether or not it's true. And so I think that's where this stuff really becomes dangerous is that, is that you just pound it and pound it and pound it into people's heads. And before long, there's no, there's no arguing with them. There's no, there's no way to tell the reality from the fiction um, which is why I think what you've seen in the last week or so, which was there were people who, you know, the, the scales fell from their eyes after his debate performance last week. And then with his diagnosis of COVID, people were like, oh, my gosh, uh, what have I been doing for the last four years? Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to vote for Joe Biden, but I think it's sort of opened their eyes to what Donald Trump has been, which is, again, I think just a, a large vessel for a much odious and more dangerous ideology that is is very active and isn't not going to go away when Trump is gone. No, but it's true. It does seem like the the antidote to people who have you know fallen prey to Trump fever is a large large dose of Trump, not a little snippet that's tailored for you and gussied up by Fox News. It's actually seeing the, seeing the man speak extemporaneously for an hour and going, "Oh, I forgot that's what the raw animal actually looks like." It's a healthy dose of dexamethasone and a monoclonal antibody. <laughs> I don't know what any of that shit means, but that's me that's neither. I'll be honest with you. I was in Palm Springs this entire week and I made it my business to uh, to stay out of politics. I'm, I'm throwing myself right back into it. Talking to you. I Good think I you. know what you're talking. I think I know what you're talking about, but I'm happy to say I'm kind of just no, humoring you. I got five days right? to go and then I'm asleep for like a week before I come see you in the desert. So. <laughs> I bet you've definitely got that coming. Okay, so everything goes down in 2016. Mark Zuckerberg goes in front of Congress. He apologizes, says they're going to set up this oversight board. They put together, it's like 29 people. To someone like me, it sounds like an impressive array of global thinkers, etc. They put together. The only problem is these people are not actually really doing anything yet, and it's critical that they already that they were already doing things at least a couple of months ago, and that's where your group comes in, correct? Sure. Well, I mean... If I mean, let's be clear, if if Zuckerberg, you know, chose these people, do you think he chose them because he was ever really worried that they would, you know, you know, commit any actual oversight of his company? I don't I don't think so. Right. They were chosen well, because exactly what you said, which is they're big yeah. names. They're probably flattered to be asked because obviously Facebook is, you know, the biggest of the big in this world. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they he, he lends them. He lends them the cachet of working, you know, you know, in this quote unquote oversight role for Facebook and he lends them and they lend him the credibility that they bring to whatever it is they might join. 
Um, so it's 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 a perfectly complementary relationship. Right, but I guess you would hope that he would decide that looking beyond the next 12-month or whatever cycle that the long-term credibility of Facebook is worth more than any short-term profits or even what a second-term Donald Trump might have to offer him. It just hasn't turned out that way. I just think you're I think we're overestimating how much he cares mm-hmm. about what anybody thinks. Okay. So where I mean, he's still the biggest dog on the block and will be for some time. Yes, for sure. So what does your group hope to practically accomplish in the absence of the group that Facebook put together but isn't using? Well, I, I think the difference is here, and I think you start to see a little bit of this stuff, is that um, he he doesn't necessarily care what people think of him, but I do think he cares about his bottom line. Yes, agreed. And so you saw earlier this year, you know, there was a, I, I don't recall the, the name of the effort, but, you know, uh, a concerted effort, I think, on you know, on social media and with the mainstream media to drive advertisers away from Facebook or to have them, uh, you know, pause their advertising while Facebook sort of cleaned up its 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 you know its cesspool. Um, and I think that he did care about that because you know, well, I think it's the millions of small advertisers who you know are on Etsy or they have a yoga studio or whatever it is that probably drive the vast majority of, you know, 15, 20, $30 payments a month, you know, in the tens of millions, you know, losing a Procter and Gamble or, or one of those, you know, is bad for business because when they try and go make, you know, big pitches to these companies about why Facebook should still be the vast majority of your advertising spend every year, um, you know, that, that makes it hard. And then there's a quarterly earnings issue, you know, and, and then that, you know, makes his stock go down, which means his personal wealth goes down. And so I think he cares about his wallet and his pocketbook, um, you know, to the extent that it has any effect on his credibility, I think is less important. So I think that that's, that's why, you know, showing people what it means to actually engage in oversight of, of, you know, what is, I mean, anything else, anything else of this size and scope at least in the United States and in most places is, is considered a utility. Yes. Right. Right. Um, right. You get too big and you become a monopoly and then you're a utility. That's right. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, Twitter has 8% of Americans or whatever. I don't know what Facebook is, but it's gotta be in the, you know, I don't know, 50% range, maybe 70% of Americans have a Facebook account or an Instagram account or a WhatsApp account. Older Americans, it's, it's, it's actually, it's higher than I thought. You're, you're up in the 90 percentage range. You're right. It is, it it is a monopoly. It has a monopoly on public discourse. Right. Um, and you know, they, they know exactly when you're on, they follow you around the internet. Um, you know, they, they know, I mean, I, I, I shut down my Facebook account, but before I did, so I downloaded the, the data they had on me. There were names of people that I hadn't thought of in decades, maybe phone numbers I hadn't seen in years, email addresses. I was like, where did they even find this stuff? Uh, and so, you know, they're creepy crawlers, you know, between them and Google, you know, they, they find everything on you. It was, it was, I thought it was fascinating and frightening all at once. Right. Well, as, as all of us have come to hopefully know by now, if there's a product that's free on the internet, that means that you are the product and that data right. that you downloaded is what, is what demonstrates that. Yeah. Look, and I think, uh, you know, Rana Faruhar's book, don't be evil. Um, I think is, is a great primer for folks who want to understand how not only Facebook, but all this stuff works. Um, she does a great job breaking it down in, in, you know, in, you know, you know, language that human beings can actually understand. Um, and, and I think you're right. <clears throat> and the question is, you know, do human beings want to be products? Are we just, are we just one more copper top to be plugged into the matrix? 
uh, in the time that I've left with you, I want to ask you about the Lincoln Project as sure. well. You, you're you the de facto public face in the public home for Never Trumpers. I've always been curious. There's so many people who were uh, opposed to Donald Trump until they no longer seemingly could be for professional reasons. Sure. What sort of feedback do you get off the record? You must have heard from a lot of people who would love to publicly agree with you, but can only do so secretly, even from the Republican Party. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we are like, I'm an independent, Schmidt's an independent, Rick's an independent. I, don't, I can't speak for George or Jennifer or Mike or, or John. So we sound like the Beatles, for Christ's sake. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I mean, most of us burned our boats with the party a long time ago. right? Okay. I mean, I go back to I left the party in 16, but I, I recognized like Trump was at least a buffoon. Uh, if nothing else, um, you know, f f going back from the very beginning, but that was, that was always sort of his, his shtick. Um, but yeah, look, there are a lot of people out there who have never liked the guy, you know, were convinced he wasn't going to win like the rest of us. And we're, you know, I know there were a few people who were in my orbit who, you know, right up, right up until election day in 2016, were calling me saying, Hey, can you help me find a job? You know, what, what am I going to do with, you know, when this is over, and then he won. And, you know, some of those people have risen to the highest ranks of the White House and the administration. Um, and, you know, they're 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 turned. They're not coming back. And then I have a lot of friends in you know Washington. I think we all do who still feel the same way about him today that they did when he you know, when he was running against uh, Hillary in 2016. And, you know, what we'd say to them is like, it's time, you know, it's time to come out of the steakhouse back room. It's time to come out of the bar. It's time to come out of the 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 conversation you have you know when you happen to see somebody on vacation or on the phone like you know who this guy is you know now what he is and what he represents and what he will do to the country if he's reelected so now it's time it's time to make your choice and i think it's time to make that choice publicly um you know the the, the time for the time for hiding in the shadows is over um you know you're either with the good guys or with the bad guys and he's a bad guy why do you think george w bush has stuck to only implicit rebukes i actually expected that by now he's the guy who's outside of the frame we all know about presidents reserving judgment but this is the time this is the exception why does he continue to bite his tongue in regard to donald trump i mean i think the pre i think president bush again i can't speak for him i mean yes. i worked for him for a long time i mm -hmm. just i think he has a very strong sense that it is not his place as a former president to get involved in electoral politics especially this close to an election i just i that's my sense is that he just feels very strongly about that have you reached out to him as on behalf of the Lincoln Project? Uh, I have not. I know that, you know, other folks have. Um, I don't know what the response to that has been. But, you know, I, I can imagine that his email box and his cell phone is probably getting in his office, probably get a lot of calls on a daily basis. Um, you know, again, if you've if you've been a president for two terms, far be it for me to tell you what you should or shouldn't do. Sure. The uh, columnist George Will has said that predicted that the Re Republican Party will quickly forget Donald Trump as soon as he loses, which George Will seems pretty sure he will. I guess sort of a, a two part question. Do you agree that that would be the case in that scenario? And secondly, do you think that that's as easily done as it is said? Or does the stain of Trumpism stay with these people who, unlike yourselves, have decided to go down with his ship? Uh, I don't think it'll go away. Right. I don't I think it, I think that some folks within the party will try and, you know, excise him from their own biographies, um, if not the party writ large. But he has he has he has reshaped this party. And I think that with the 
with the words and the deeds and the actions, you know, and, and the people who have gone along with it, you know, people like me, and I believe probably millions of others um, have, have left the party never to return. Um, and if you just say, well, he's gone now, so we're really the good guys again. Really? You're, you're the good guys after all the stuff, you know, with, with our allies, with all the, with all the failures of COVID, with all the ugliness around race and division and disunion and the call to arms of the Boogaloo boys and the proud boys and all this, like, I don't think a lot of Americans, regardless of their past registration, were anything to do with a party that stood for that. And, and then I think there's a much more nefarious group, whether or not it's Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz or Rubio or Nikki Haley or, or Pompeo that believe that that's that 35 or 40 percent of the country that might have been you know, with Trump for some time that maybe makes up a bulk of the Republican Party, at least a primary electorate. Um, they're going to double down on that stuff. Um, because they know it's going to get these people fired up and Trump's going to have a voice after he loses. He's not going away. He'll start Trump TV or some other silliness. And like, he will continue to drive these messages into those same people that are willing to accept them now. And so I, I, I would love to believe that, that Mr. Will is right. I just, I don't take nearly as optimistic of you. And I'll tell you this for those people who stood lockstep with him, who were complicit in his actions and refused to do or say anything about them. Like they're not going to get away with it. Like they're, their silence and their collaboration, like they will be noted for it going forward. And I can promise you that we'll be the people who are noting them. So this, the, the election win or lose won't be the end of the Lincoln project or something like it. No, I mean, look, we are a pro democracy organization. You know, they call us never Trump in this, in the context of this election, we are, but we're also anti-Trumpism, which is, you know, has turned what was an otherwise reputable Republic, you know, Republican party that believed in individual liberty and fiscal conservatism, at least fiscal sanity, and a muscular and moral foreign policy into one that is the devotee of one man. Their party platform literally says, whatever Donald Trump is for is what we're for, and whatever he's against, we're against. Like, that's not a political party. That's a gang. And so, you know, if so long as, so long as they're going to be committed only to their, you know, retention, you know, uh, accession to and retention of power, of, you know, personal largesse and self-aggrandizement, like, they're not a legitimate political organization. They are the political, they're a political organization, you know, for a bunch of, you know, folks who want to, you know, be in power for its own sake, not for the right reasons. And look, even if you were never a conservative, conservative, you could at least look when I worked for George W. Bush, you might have disagreed with him on policy, but you couldn't say he wasn't an optimist. And at least from his perspective, he was trying to do right by the American people, whether you agreed with him or not. You could say the same thing with Barack Obama, whether or not you were a Democrat or a progressive. You know, did you believe that he was single handedly trying to take down America as we saw it? Maybe at the time when he first got elected, I might have believed that. But, you know, time leavens uh, passions. And I think that you, you see people who, you know, in retrospect, maybe you disagreed with how Donald Trump or Barack Obama handled the office. But you never believed that they were bad people who wanted to do bad things. Donald Trump is, has, is not stupid, but he has bad intentions. To tie together the two subjects, the Lincoln Project project and the Facebook oversight, in the event that Donald Trump seems to have lost but refuses to concede, which I know is one of your concerns in regard to Facebook oversight, sure. what would you predict as somebody with your ear to the ground on the Republican side of things? What do you think happens to the rest of the Republican Party? Do they fall in line with something that outrageous, or is that finally the breaking point? Uh, I think that... If Donald Trump was close, um, I think that a lot more of these people might be willing to take a flyer on his ability to stay in office. I think that every day that goes by, 
Um, I think that his, his numbers are slipping further and further nationally, which is fine, but really in these states, which is where it matters. And I think that you see, like Bill Barr has gone to ground. Jared and Ivanka have gone to ground. Um, you know, Trump is starting to lash out now at his inner circle. Um, and I think that's because these people know, like he knows that he's going down. And so I think the level of insanity and chaos emanating from Trump personally will continue to increase uh, as we get closer and closer to Election Day. But I, I hope and we will be encouraging these people and we will be we will be asking these people point blank. Where are you going to stand? You're going to stand with Donald Trump. You're going to stand with the country because this is the this is the time for choosing whether or not, again, it's the attorney general of the United States or all of our friends and colleagues in Washington, D.C. and around the country who have so far refused to take a stand against this guy. Are you really going to stand up for armed insurrection? You're going to stand up for sedition. You're going to stand up for legislators, you know, saying we're going to put in alternate slates of electors if Donald Trump doesn't win, because that's the end of the country or the end of the country as we've known it. And I don't think that's what most people want. I can surely agree with you uh, there. I have to let you go. I have so many more things I want to talk to you about, but thank you so much for... Well, I'm happy to come back anytime, Mike. Let's try, Let's do this again. Uh, Real Facebook oversight board. We're going to have to see about what's going on with that website at the moment, but I can tell you the Lincoln Project is... I Lincoln... will be making some phone calls, Mike. LincolnProject.us. Thank you so much for your time, Reed Galen. Thanks, Mike. You are listening to The Tully Show. More to come after this. Welcome back to The Tully Show, where perhaps you can hear faintly in the distance my son doing recorder practice. Thank you, Zoom Home Broadcasting. Uh, My last guest was Reed Galen, and I figure if you're still here after a half hour of the guy from The Lincoln Project, this is probably as good a time as any as I am going to get to speak to you directly and to share my thoughts on this upcoming election. Um, And I don't do that lightly. I'm well aware that I'm a dick and fart joke guy, and I think that is my lane. I think that is my specialty, but I think extraordinary times call for outside of the ordinary actions. And I I personally believe that we are living in in such a time. Now, I know that many people who listen to the show probably don't want to hear this kind of stuff from me. And I also know that a lot of you might respect my opinion, but come to listen to a show like this to get away from all that stuff, which is happening all the time everywhere else. I respect that. If you don't want to hear what I have to say, just go ahead and uh, and tune out. I am very, very, very realistic about my odds or how low my odds are of changing everybody's minds. But as I say, I think these are extraordinary times, and I don't think it's crazy to imagine a future where someday my kids are looking back on this era of American history and asking me, Dad, what did you do when this stuff was going on? Since I am a broadcaster with a tiny little bit of a platform, and I would like to be able to say that I did try to to win some open hearts and open minds in my own tiny way. So that's what I'd like to do for the rest of the show today. I promise Mark McGrath will be back next week. I'm sure people have noticed that there has been more politics, more world affair kinds of stuff on the show lately. I like it. I didn't start doing it because of Donald Trump. I honestly started doing it because whenever I'm reading, still hear recorder in the background, hope you're enjoying that. 
Whenever I'm checking out news, I just feel like I always have questions that they're not answering. They're always tackling angles that are salacious and soap opera-y, and it's not really the stuff that I want to know about. So I've made it my business recently to try to find authors, especially who have some more extended insights into things so we can have more in-depth conversations. I, I hope you've enjoyed. I feel like people have enjoyed hearing from Jason Stanley, who wrote that book about fascism. I really enjoyed talking to Michael Malice. There's a couple more that have happened, and hopefully there will be a couple more in the the days to come. I feel like there are lots of people who listen to this show who feel as fed up as I do with how childish the conversation has become around some incredibly important issues. And I, and I'm, I know that there are people who listen to me who have voted Republican their entire lives, and that's cool. I have tons of respect for well-intentioned Republicans who have thought through the reasons why they feel the way that they do. I think it's critical to this country to have both ends of the political spectrum, and both of them are right sometimes, and both of them are wrong sometimes. The issue that I take with our current world is uh, is Trump and is Trumpism. And by the way, I agree with Michael Malice, who said when he was on the show, check that episode out if you haven't already, that Donald Trump is more a symptom of the issue of what's going on with our country than the actual problem itself, at least insofar as the fact that it doesn't go away magically if he loses an election to Joe Biden. There's this anger that's alive inside, festering inside of many Americans, and there's, I have to say, an irrationality that that seems to be festering inside of many Americans, and I, I am completely realistic about the extent to which that does and does not go away if Donald Trump goes away, which is why I would like to continue making this show in addition to talking to fun entertainers and, you know, doing silly stuff and music stuff with McGrath, a place where we can have adult conversations about the issues that are affecting the world, because I don't feel like there are too many outlets for that. If there are, I'm not I'm not aware of them. Anyway, I, let me lay my cards on the table. Everybody pretty much already knows this. If you haven't heard me say it, I'm a center left kind of person. I don't think I'm trying to remember if I've ever voted for a Republican. I might have voted for Bloomberg or Giuliani in New York, both Republican mayors who I respected for the most part of the job that they did. I've definitely seen good Republican candidates and, and politicians and heaven knows the Democratic Party, at least currently, does not speak for me either. I, I think no matter what happens after all this I remain very, very disappointed in the Democratic Party that it feels to me, right, like 40 percent of America is all the way for the left and 40 percent is all the way for the right. So you have this little middle 20, maybe it's even just 10 percent that the two sides fight over. And to me, Donald Trump has made it pretty easy to to win the hearts and minds of that uh, that middle ground. And the fact that they have been unable to do that speaks to, you know, the, the fact that the, the Democrats don't have a whole lot to be proud of themselves at the moment they have effectively they lost the middle to that guy last time and they could very very easily it seems do that again i would say pretty much the same thing about the left-wing media there is all kinds of smoking guns where donald trump and his ilk have been concerned this entire time and i read this thing one time it was probably in regard to trump about where if you're like a, a lawyer prosecuting a murder case, forgive me, I feel like I always repeat myself on this show. I have a toddler. That's my excuse. If I'm still doing it when she's in high school, then I'm just senile. But for now, I'm blaming it on the girl. So anyway, there's this this idea that if you're prosecuting a case and you have lots of foolproof, ev foolproof evidence and then you have a bunch of other flimsier evidence, you don't even bring up the flimsy stuff. It might make sense to go, well, 
look at this, look at this, look at this, and hey, take a look at this other stuff. That looks kind of bad too. But that's where you expose yourself. If people can poke holes in some of your evidence, they can effectively poke holes in your entire case. That's, these are lawyer tricks. And I feel like I would use the example of I don't know. None of us knows what actually happened between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump in 2015, 2016, right? But there was definitely no smoking gun where that was involved. More on that. I'll get into that more in a little bit. But by pushing that narrative so hard when it did seem flimsy, when it perhaps did not hold water, might not hold water, it makes all the other stuff that they have been rightly accusing Trump of nailing him on look a little bit weaker because they haven't always been right. And he's the kind of guy who go look at that one time you were wrong. Therefore, you must be a big dumb idiot. Right. So I am disappointed in the Democratic Party. I'm disappointed in both sides of the the media, um, including, quote unquote, my side. But more than anything, I am just disappointed at the fact that Donald Trump has a snowball's chance in hell of winning this election when it to me is just manifestly clear and has been pretty much from the jump that he's just not the guy for the job. When he was initially elected, I I bit my tongue. And the one thing that I finally could not resist was Greg Popovich, the, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. His statement was something, something to the effect of, you know, I won't get into the nitty gritty politics stuff, but I'm just really disappointed at how many Americans have responded to the race baiting elements of the Trump campaign. And I just retweeted that. And I said, I'm with pop. And, you know, I got some likes or retweets or whatever. But what stood out to me way more was the people who wrote back to me to, you know, make fun of me or say, well, you must love Hillary, which by the way, does not follow that if you dislike one, you love the other. That is a very childish tendency that many people who like to argue politics fall into these days. But Instead of arguing with people or muting them, I don't know why I made this decision. I guess I was just so curious to get to the bottom of it all. I took these people into DMs, I slid into their DMs, and we had conversations. And I ended up having these really human conversations with Trump voters. And the one that I remember the most, I've definitely mentioned this on the show, was the one guy who said, look, man, everybody's just been ignoring us. He's the one person who actually made it clear that middle America, flyover, rural, whatever you want to call it, that we are the heartland of America and we're not just going to have to be, you know, this sort of chew toy in between globalists really on the right and globalists on the left. And I couldn't argue with that. I, I understood where he was coming from and it was, I think it's always informed the way that I've understood, you know, the Trump phenomenon and our country's political life over the last four years is... I know that there are well-meaning human beings who who love America and, you know, get it, uh, who who voted for Donald Trump and maybe you're even still planning on, on voting for him. And so I don't want to demonize. I mean, there's some fucking assholes on both sides. It does seem like there's a pretty fair number of them on the right. But I know that there's human beings in the middle. And those are the people that I really want to talk to you right now. I just want to... Uh, I want to remind you of some of the greatest hits of these are things that you probably know most, if not all of these things. I just want to remind you of who it is that we are talking about as we all make this very incredibly important decision of who will be our president come uh, come November. I I try to give him a chance. I really, really 
did. He was the guy saying, oh, I'm going to be so boring. Do you remember this? I'm going to be so boring. You'll be bored with me because it's going to change so much when I get elected. Obviously, this was an early indicator that he would say anything that came to mind that made sense to him and felt true, felt right in the moment, regardless of the reality of it as it was going to be in the world or in his mind 30 seconds or a day or or a month later. And then just the inauguration just blatantly lied about the inauguration numbers. And yes, I know all politicians lie and they usually tell some pretty heinous lies from time to time. But this felt like something a little bit different to me. This was the and I don't get into the whole like Orwell Hitler comparison kind of thing, but it was sort of George Orwellian. It just sort of was big brothery in this regard that the expectation if you fall in line with Trump is that you're supposed to believe the reality that he presents to you. Um, regardless of what your own eyes tell you. It was obvious it could be proven every which way that his inauguration numbers were not as big as Obama's, but it was important to him to believe that. So he was going to run out Sean Spicer and 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 keep doubling down on this crazy lie. And then, you know, the Frederick Douglass is a great American happened within a couple weeks. And, you know, at that point, my worst um, suspicions of what a Trump presidency was were pretty much confirmed. And for four years, the hits have really just kept coming. I might have some of the facts I'm about to share with you wrong. I apologize in advance. I truly do. If I do, I make dick and fart jokes for a living. I'm not a media, a, a, a political media person. I'm just a concerned citizen. But to refresh your memory, the the rallies were, and if he gets to do them again, continue to be um, they are fascistic. It was funny when Jason Stanley was on the show, the author of How Fascism Works, and I thought he was a cool guest to have on because he wasn't here to say Donald Trump is a fascist and he's Hitler and here's why and the other side is so good. He said there are elements of fascism to the way Trump operates and hell, there's elements of fascism to the way Joe Biden, for example, operates. So we split the nickel a lot on when Trump delves a little bit into possibly fascistic waters and then the rallies came up and it was oh forget the parsing okay that's just this is authoritarian bully pulpiting stuff at the worst and as i say i've been incredibly disappointed by the media any number of different ways any number of different times but they're they're not the enemy of the people did you know by the way and i think this is true check my facts um the new york Times were the ones who broke the story about the hillary email server did you know it actually came from them I feel like that's relevant. But to go on and to, to to joke with Vladimir Putin, with Vladimir Putin, as Donald Trump later did, about how Donald Trump should get rid of journalists, knowing full well that Putin is somebody who has had you know reporters murdered and will continue to have reporters murdered. This is unacceptable. Just the way that our president, the U.S. president, has cozied up to people like Putin, like, is it Erdogan? Is that how you say the guy? Anyway, you know who I'm talking about uh, from Turkey. And while at the same time being reserving judgment and reserving the right to criticize, you know, our our traditional allies, this is this is unacceptable. Did you know that Erdogan brought his people to the White House and there was protesters outside of the White House and Erdogan's people got into a, a fight with them and Trump later on apologized to him for the ugliness he'd run into outside of the the White House? I understand real politic. I understand that sometimes you got to, you know, do business with enemies to achieve the greater good and stuff like that. But considering what a Senate supposedly was for Obama to apologize for this and that thing that America has done to then turn around and to apologize to a, a governmental thug for 
getting his thugs into a fight outside of our White House is, once again, it's a word I'm going to use a lot here. It's, it's unacceptable. Unacceptable is retweeting a tweet that says, we know who did this, referring to the Clintons when Jeffrey Epstein met his untimely demise, however that went down in, in prison. Maybe the Clintons had him murdered. Maybe that really happened, but you don't go around saying things like that if you don't have a whole hell of a lot of proof and you for damn sure don't do that if you're the president of America. Unacceptable. He repeatedly has accused Joe Scarborough, who, I mean, God, the fucking people who I am familiar with because that I could care less about because the incessant coverage of our president has made these people household names. So Morning Joe, uh, Donald Trump has repeatedly accused Joe Scarborough of murder because a staff member from Joe's show or office, or I think back when he was a politician, died. And you know, Trump and Scarborough were still friends beyond after that guy died. That was totally fine. It was when Scarborough turned on Trump publicly on TV that all of a sudden he became a murderer, despite the fact that the the dead person's family asked Twitter to make him stop. This is insane. This is unacceptable. Literally telling uh, uh, American congresswomen to, well, he didn't say go back to where you came from. That's been the joke on the Ellis show for a while. What, go back to the, the shithole from whence you came? That's a little bit closer to what he actually said. And it's arguably probably worse. Doesn't even matter that three out of four of the women he was referring to were born in America. This is unacceptable speaking of the race stuff i have bent over backwards to play everybody knows i'm a contrarian everybody knows i play devil's advocate i've bent over backwards to give trump the benefit of the doubt on lots and lots of race stuff and i have dug in with many people and said you know mexican rapists and stuff like that well you know actually what he's saying is that there are good people in mexico but it's the bad ones who make it here illegally like i have tried to make that argument but for example stephen miller if you know who he is is very closely tied to the president. He works in the White House every day. I think his official title is like White House advisor, like whatever the hell that means. He's a white nationalist. There's, uh, He wrote like nearly 1,000 emails outlying his white supremacist views to, to Breitbart. So that is who is operating in our White House. That is unacceptable. Um, this is, I, you know, I feel like it's passe to even bring this stuff up. It is unacceptable to physically mock a guy in a wheelchair. It's unacceptable to to dismiss John McCain because you like guys who don't get caught. It's, uh, it's unacceptable to repeatedly make personal attacks against an autistic child who sails around the world crusading against climate change. Now, I understand how... Uh, Greta Thunberg, Sternberg, fuck, like I say, I just want to go back to making dick jokes. I don't want to know about any of this stuff. I understand how it can be a bit much for this saintly little child to go around hectoring the world about what they should and shouldn't do. And even if you know she's right, and you know she's right, you don't really like the vessel of her browbeating you with it. But two wrongs don't make a right. And well, she's not doing anything wrong, of course. And it is wrong to insult an autistic child. This should not need to be said, but this is the world in which we find ourselves unacceptable, accusing an old man of being Antifa when he protests police protesting protesters. I mean, calling, that's not just unacceptable. That's not sane. That's not the action of a sane person. And I think more and more I fall, I find myself falling into the Jim Gaffigan 
line of, I'm sure many, if not most of you are familiar with when Jim Gaffigan had his little Twitter meltdown during the Republican National Convention and just pointed out the the flaws as he saw them. And I see all the same flaws in the, the Trump movement and in that convention and just saying like, this is not okay. And you know this. And as Gaffigan later said, he knows that he can't reach 35% of the country. They're completely unreachable, but he felt like there was still some decent people, Americans um, in the middle that he could reach. And, and that's pretty much the exact same people that I hope I'm talking to right now. I totally get it. If you hate the other party and you think Joe Biden is, you know, you don't like the way he holds babies crotches or something like that. Like I get it. I'm, I don't know. I've yet to meet somebody who's a massive Joe Biden fan, but he's an acceptable choice for president. And I think deep down inside, everybody knows that. Look, I think we should clean up our politics in general. And then if we cleaned up our politics in general, people like Joe Biden would become unacceptable. And I allow myself to dream of a better tomorrow where we've even done that. But for the time being, you know, we need to take out the trash and the guy who, yes, talks about putting disinfectant and light under your skin to cure coronavirus is just not in the pool of eligible, acceptable candidates to be the president of the United States. And I know where that even came from. I felt almost bad for the people who had to defend that nonsense. Did you see the graphic, right? Where right before Trump goes out on stage for that press conference, they have like a, uh, um, like a placard that's talking about how disinfectants kill coronavirus. They do, apparently. Science is evolving. That's the way science works, but it seems that way. Even natural light, sunlight seems to kill it. So he looks at that and just turns around and regurgitates the thing that he just read, despite the fact that he's changed a couple of critical details. Now we're putting it inside the body, thereby making it insane, which, of course, he cannot admit at, at any point in the future because, you know, he admitting weakness is not part of his game, even when it probably would suit him to own a really, really, really moronic falsehood. I'm um, speaking of coronavirus, and this to me is and will re remain the smoking gun where Trump is concerned. I'm looking at a, a quote here from March 3rd. Anybody that wants a test can get a test. When Donald Trump said that, my wife was very ill and my daughter was very ill. And you know what? They had fevers and God, it's been a long time now. I think my daughter had nausea. It wasn't like a chest kind of bronchial thing. So maybe it wasn't coronavirus, but at the time, none of us really knew what coronavirus was. This is exactly as the shutdown happened. And the doctors tested my, at that point, pretty much baby for like 20 different viruses. And they said, well, it's a virus and she's negative for all the ones we tested her for. And she's negative for the flu as well. And we said, well, what about coronavirus? And they basically explained that there were about 500 tests in the state of California and that she wasn't going to get one. And, you know, she got better and my wife got better. My son also got sick. He got better. So I guess all is well that that ends well. But for the president to say anyone that wants a test can get a test when my entire family desperately needed tests um, and, and we're unable to get them. This is, for the last time, unacceptable. I could go on. I'm sure I've already lost half of you who started listening to this segment, but for those of you who stuck around, I do appreciate it. I promise again next week we will have Mark McGrath. We'll just be talking about stupid music, but uh, can we all agree on this? Let's just let Joe Biden keep the seat warm for four years and then, yes, President Rock. I believe. Thank you for uh, hearing me out, and uh, this has been The Telly Show. See you next week. 